My name is Deborah Hoffman. My name is Luke Arledge. My name is Linda Thompson. I'm a high school student. I am the bookstore manager here at New Life. I am a CD educational aide for the Gahanna School System. I became a follower of Christ in the fifth grade. In 1979. I have been following Christ since I was 11 years old. I've been at New Life since March of 1986. I've been at New Life since I was in the fourth grade. Since June of 2005. I grew up in a Christian home going to church weekly. I grew up going to church with my mom and my sister. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is peer pressure at school. My biggest challenge as a Christ follower is staying focused and not allowing the world to get in the way. My biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is uh, witnessing on the job. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. Well, we are knee-deep in this series in 1 Corinthians, and I don't know about you, but I'm just enjoying the heck out of it, and uh, God's been speaking to me, and so if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and you can pull the study guide out of your worship folder as well. You know how sometimes you can be in a conversation with someone on a particular topic, and all of a sudden, somebody will say something that triggers a whole new thought, And then the conversation goes off and goes in a whole other direction and you might get back to your original topic or you might not. Humans are funny that way. I think that's kind of what happened with Paul as he was dictating his letter to the Corinthians. You might recall from last week that he was talking to them about the these divisions, these factions that had arisen within the church and how it had been reported to him that people were lining up behind their favorite teachers and forming fan clubs and kind of breaking apart the church. And he started talking to those who were lining up behind him. Remember that? His fan club. And basically he said, look, I didn't die on the cross for you. You know, you weren't baptized in my name. Don't put me on a pedestal. And then in verse 17 of chapter 1, he wrote, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And boom, his mind, something is triggered in his mind, and he goes off in a whole nother direction. And he's, he's thinking, you know, okay, the gospel, wisdom, power, I think I'm going to ride that horse for a while. And eventually he'll get back, he'll come back around and cycle back to talking about the divisions in the church and so forth. But he's going to digress a little bit, and what a glorious digression it is. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what we're going to see today. And Basically, what Paul is going to contend is that God's wisdom and power, as demonstrated in the gospel, is far superior to human wisdom and human strength and power. So let's take a moment and bow our heads and just pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to us and that we'll get it today, what he's talking about. So Lord, we do right now come to you in humility and in submission. And we declare that your word is in authority over us. We open up our hearts and minds now. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would be our truth teacher today. Open up our eyes to what you want us to see and Apply this, Lord, to us. We know that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but we're looking to you to apply these scriptures today to New Life Church Gehanna and to me. 
And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the first thing that Paul is going to do in this little digression of his is he's going to reference something we've probably all experienced. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so he's just going to start out this section by noting that people respond differently when they hear the gospel message. That was true in his day, it's true in ours. You ever shared the gospel with someone or you know, tried to share the facts about Christ with them and they look at you and go, huh, what? Or perhaps you've had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone and they just kind of came alive and said, wow, yeah, that's, that's what I've been looking for my whole life. Same message, two vastly different responses. Well, that was true in, in his day as well. He said the word of the cross is foolishness to some who are perishing, but to people who are being saved, it's the power of God. And everywhere Paul went and preached the gospel, people responded in two different ways. Before arriving in Corinth, he had spent some time in Athens, Greece, preaching the gospel there. And everywhere he went there preaching, it was met with two different responses. Acts 17.32 records the responses of the Athenians. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Paul had told them Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died and then he came back from the dead. It says that some of them mocked. They sneered. They said, what are you talking about? But others said, we will hear you again about this. This is intriguing to us. We want to hear more. Two different responses to the same message. That's still the case. Some people hear the message of the gospel and they go, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. Our sin deserves God's wrath. Sin must be atoned for. With blood? God became a baby? He was born of a virgin? A carpenter's son? And then you're telling me that God grew up and let himself be executed, let himself be crucified? And then he rose from the dead? What have you been smoking? (laughs) That is craziness. That is foolishness to some people. The whole thing is foolish. The word of the cross is folly, it says to some. And the word he uses in the Greek is moria or moros, from which we get our word moron. That's moronic. That is nonsense. That's ridiculous. It sounds like nonsense to some people. And Paul contends that those who see the gospel as foolish are those who are what? What does he say? Perishing. Yeah, these are the... The unregenerate folks, the unsaved, the unredeemed, those who are still under the wrath of God, whose eyes have not yet been opened to see the cross for what it really is. And there are those who see the cross that way. Others see the gospel as as it truly is, a demonstration of God's power and God's wisdom. They've had their spiritual eyes open. The gospel doesn't seem foolish to them. The cross seems beautiful, glorious, powerful, wise. And it's these people whom Paul says are those who are being saved. 
But it's true, the gospel sounds like foolishness to some people. Last weekend, after the first celebration, a young lady came down and asked me something I said in the, the message. She said, how is it that the gospel can be preached in such a way that empties it of its power, that nullifies it of its power? And I think one way that can happen is when preachers of the gospel, in an effort to make it palatable and believable to people, drain all the offensiveness out of it. I think that causes it to lose its power. When preachers minimize the stench of our sin to God, when they remove the teaching about his wrath against sin, when they gloss over the brutality of the cross, when they fail to call people to repentance, remove the offense, lose the power of the cross. You see, the message of the gospel is offensive. In fact, Paul's going to tell us that the gospel is supposed to sound offensive and foolish to unregenerate people. Their only hope is if God calls them and opens their eyes to the beauty and glory of the old rugged cross. Well, you know, this church at Corinth had embraced such a man-centered view of everything like we talked about last week that Paul in his little rabbit trail here, is going to attack. He's going to lay siege to a man-centered view of the gospel. He's going to present a God-centered gospel, and he's going to argue strongly that God designed the gospel, God handcrafted the gospel specifically for his own purposes. And he's going to share with us six purposes that God had in designing it the way he did. Hopefully, our study of grace in January helped us to grow accustomed to seeing the gospel this way. Well, Paul says God designed the gospel the way he did, first of all, to frustrate human wisdom. Look at verse 19. For it is written, so he's going to quote the Old Testament here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, frustrate. And Paul is referencing an Old Testament passage from Isaiah. And what was going on then is that Judah, the nation of Judah, was about to be attacked by a neighboring country, Assyria. And so the king of Judah got his advisors together and said, we got we to gotta, you know, come up with some strategies and some plans here to defend ourselves against this attack. But God had told his prophet that Judah would not be saved by relying on their own ingenuity or cleverness or human strategizing but they would be saved solely by God's power with no human help. And that's what happened. God sent an angel, a destroying angel, and 185,000 Assyrian warriors were wiped out by one angel. God did it. No human help at all. And Paul, I believe, is saying that God designed the gospel for that same purpose, to demonstrate that human wisdom would play no part in the salvation of mankind, none. God would do it. God would save people by his own power. And so smart people would think the gospel foolish, dumb, moronic, ridiculous. God designed the gospel, A, to frustrate human wisdom, B, to make the wisdom of the world look foolish. Not only frustrating human wisdom, but making the world's wisdom look foolish. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? He's kind of being sarcastic here. Where, where are the smart people? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In other words, where are all the smart people with all the answers? Has the human condition improved any because of all the philosophizing that's been going on? He would have said, and we could say that in our day, huh? Oh, yeah, we've got iPods now and iPads and all this, you know, tremendous technological advances. But is the human condition any different? Have we been able to do away with war and hatred and injustice and all of that? And what's the answer? No, no. Where's the guy with all the answers? Now, you know that the Greeks love philosophy. Corinth was 45 miles from Athens, which was the seat of philosophy. You've heard of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And Corinth was crawling with philosophers. As I studied this, I found that there were about 50 different philosophies that were circulating around Corinth in that day. Of course, every philosophy had its own guru and had its own band of followers. And the people there were forever standing around debating and disputing and arguing their philosophies with each other. Every philosophy sought to explain the meaning of life and the ultimate destiny of humanity. And so wisdom was highly valued and sought after in that culture, but it was all human wisdom. Man-centered wisdom sounded good to lots of people, but God is saying that, or Paul is saying that God designed his plan of salvation in such a way as to make human wisdom look absolutely foolish. One commentator wrote this. Human wisdom sometimes sees the immediate cause of a problem, but it doesn't see the root, which is always sin. It may see that selfishness is the cause of injustice, but it has no way to remove selfishness. It may see that hatred causes misery and pain and destruction, but it has no cure for hatred. It can see plainly that man does not get along with man, but it doesn't see that the real cause is that man does not get along with With God. Human wisdom looks on God's wisdom as foolishness, and as long as it does, its own wisdom will be foolish. In other words, human wisdom itself is a basic part of the problem. The gospel may look foolish to those who are operating by human wisdom, but it is actually designed and handcrafted by God in such a way as to make human wisdom look foolish. And God did it that way. He designed it that way to frustrate human wisdom, to make the world's wisdom look foolish. And third, I love this one. He designed the gospel the way that he did to please himself by saving those who believe. I love this. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, that's through human wisdom, it pleased God. You might want to circle that phrase. It made God happy through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. Aren't you glad? What's he saying? He's saying that God in his wisdom decreed that the world would not know him through human wisdom, but only through believing the message of the cross, the gospel. No one can philosophize their way into knowing God. And that's by God's design. Listen, if people could know God through higher thinking skills, then only smart people would be saved. And then all the smarties would walk around saying, hey, look at me. 
I was smart enough to figure God out. I was smart enough to figure out how to get in good with him, get in his good graces, how to know him. But the gospel was designed in such a way that no one can boast. No one can boast. It's designed to frustrate those who think that they're that smart and it renders their so-called wisdom foolish so that they too must fall on their knees and declare that God alone is smart. <laughs> it says it made God happy. It pleased him to save people who simply believe his gospel and rest in his power to save them. Thank God. You know, God didn't have to save anybody. No one deserves to be saved, but he made a way where there wasn't a way and it pleased him to do it. That's our God. A fourth purpose for which God designed the gospel, letter D, is to demonstrate his superior wisdom and power. Through the gospel, God wanted people and angels and demons and Satan to see that his wisdom is superior to man's wisdom. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, what? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. They trip over it. It's offensive to them. And folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called. Why don't you circle that word? To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, if you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you will see that whenever he interacted with the Jews, they were forever demanding that he perform a sign. Give us a sign, Jesus. Do something. Do something miraculous so that we can believe in you. Do something supernatural, and that will validate your ministry. I mean, they were demanding his signs. And, of course, you know, he walked on water. <laughs> he multiplied bread, loaves of bread and fish and fed 5,000 people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Somehow, all of those signs weren't enough for those guys. They had a, an insatiable appetite to see supernatural signs. So he says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. As I've said, they valued philosophies and clever arguments and logic and those kinds of things. But in his brilliance, God designed the message of the gospel so that it seemed to contain neither wisdom nor power. Think about it. You have a weak-looking God who allows himself to be executed. Where's the power in that? You have a crucified God who was raised from the dead. That sounds ridiculous. And so the gospel was offensive to many Jews, a stumbling block. That's not the kind of Messiah we wanted. Crucified Messiah, we wanted a king who would come and set up his kingdom and deliver us from the oppression of Rome. Jesus was a stumbling block to Jews, and to Greeks he just seemed moronic, foolish. But listen, to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ becomes the power and wisdom of God. Something happens inside of some people that causes them to see Jesus and the cross differently. And what is it? 
to those who are called. We've talked a lot about the calling of God recently. And in his grace and in his love, God calls people, doesn't he? He calls people. And in so doing, when he calls them, he opens their eyes to the power and the wisdom of the cross. And so instead of seeing the cross as weak or foolish, they go, oh my, it's beautiful. (laughs) It's beautiful. I love the cross. I love the gospel. I love Jesus. He He would do that for me. And so... Paul contends that those who believe the gospel are enabled to see that God's so-called foolishness, God's so-called weakness, is actually far superior to man's wisdom and man's strength. Why did God design the gospel? To frustrate human wisdom, to make the wisdom of the world look foolish, to please himself by saving believers, to demonstrate his superior power and wisdom, And then fifth, this one is quite humbling. Check this out. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Just talk about, he's just talked about those who've been called. He says, now how about you guys? Think about your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did God craft the gospel the way that he did? To shame the wise and the strong. That's what it says. Do you get this? (laughs) Consider your own calling, people, is what he says, and see the wisdom of God on display once again. God Design the gospel in such a way that it appeals most to people who are not impressive by the world's standards. That's what it says. To those who lack resources, who know they're needy. And there's this kind of downward progression here in the language that he uses. He starts out, not many of you are wise, you know, university educated, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, He chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, the things that are not. That's an interesting term. It's a a term of utter contempt in the Greek language. Literally, he chose the nobodies. (laughs) The nobodies to shame the wise. What's he saying? God doesn't choose people for his team. God doesn't call people based on how impressive they are in this world. He doesn't call the people we would call. Maybe Paul had the photo directory in front of him there of the New Life Church of Corinth, and he was flipping through the pages and chuckling probably. Well, that family wasn't very impressive, that's for sure. That girl was a prostitute. That guy was an addict. That couple had nothing. She was divorced. They didn't go to college. Hey, church, nobody in your church showed up in last year's edition of Who's Who in Corinth. God actually designed the gospel so that it would appeal not to the rich and the wealthy and the educated and the intelligent and the smart, but to the lowly and the needy and the humble. John MacArthur writes this. 
God is not looking for Phi Beta Kappas to save and to do his work. Nor is he looking for millionaires or famous athletes or entertainers or statesmen. His salvation is open to them, just as surely as to others, but only on the same basis of faith. The very things that put them ahead in the world may actually put them behind with God. It's the feeling of inadequacy that makes people aware that they have a need and often draws them to the gospel. Now look around today. Just look around. Look at the people here at New Life Church. Look at the people down your row. There's a few impressive people. But most of us are pretty ordinary, everyday folks, right? For most of us, our face is never going to appear on a magazine cover or on television. You know, sometimes we think, oh, God, if only such and such a star athlete or entertainer or, you know, rock star or whatever would get saved, it would just be so awesome. And sometimes a few do. But the Tim Tebow's of the world and the Kurt Warner's of the world are rare, aren't they? And they perhaps had to humble themselves even more because of their talent and notoriety. You see, they could only know God the same way that all of us come to know God, even those of us who are untalented and unimpressive, by bowing our knee to Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins and believing the gospel. That's how anybody gets saved. And God designed it that way. But why? (laughs) Why? What's the end game here? Why did he cause the gospel to appear so foolish to so many people? Why did he block people from knowing him through human wisdom? Why did he craft and custom design the gospel so that it appeals mostly to the lowly and the despised? Why? Well, Paul's going to tell us. You ready for this? He did it this way, ultimately, to bring the maximum glory to himself. To himself. Verse 29, after talking about God choosing the lowly and the despised, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, verse 30, that you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us, that's us who believe, wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is all that to us. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the gospel is first for God and then for us. The gospel was designed primarily to bring all the glory to God and leave no room for any human boasting. That's why over and over the Bible says that no one should boast, that no one should boast, that no one should boast. God set it up that way. God designed it that way that he himself might get all the glory. And you might think, well, is is he just an egomaniac? Give me glory. No, you would be an egomaniac if you said things like that, but not God, because he is the supreme being in all the universe. To deflect glory to anybody else would be foolish for him to do that. Because he's it. So God has an agenda in the gospel, and his agenda is to magnify himself. Through saving the lowly and the despised, 
The father seeks to elevate the son above everyone else. And the son seeks to magnify and glorify the father. And the Holy Spirit seeks to glorify and magnify the father and the son. It's a beautiful thing. Do we get this? In so doing, God gets all the glory for your salvation, 100% of it. (laughs) That's why any theological system that leaves room for you or I to take any credit for our salvation is flawed at its core so that no one can boast. That's how he set it up. Let him who boasts, boast in who? God. And that's also why Paul proclaimed the gospel in the way that he did, in the manner that he did. That's the third point here. Paul proclaimed the gospel in such a way as to magnify God rather than himself. Chapter 2, verse 1. Woohoo, we made it into chapter 2. All right, we're rolling now. And he reminds them of what, of his manner when he was with them in Corinth. Verse 1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love this verse. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, human wisdom but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so now Paul's winding his way back to his original subject. Remember, some people in that church were boasting about Paul. They were saying, Paul's our guy. We're followers of Paul. We wear his T-shirts. And I think it's to them that he's directing these comments. Hey, guys, do you remember when I was there? Do you remember when I was there preaching the gospel to you? Do you remember how I came across? Do you remember my manner? He says, my preaching didn't contain lofty speech or wisdom. Now, he could have. He had those skills. And maybe if he'd used that, maybe more people would have showed up. But he went a different route for a reason. And he says, my message wasn't some complex philosophy. I wasn't just adding another philosophy to the ones you're already disputing. I brought a very simple message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's about Jesus and his cross. This is one thing I'm learning about preaching. I'm learning to tie everything back to Jesus and his cross. For I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean you never talk about marriage again? No, we talk about marriage. Christ-centered, cross-centered marriage. We're never going to talk about finances again? Yeah, we'll talk about finances and specifically how the cross of Jesus sets us free from that incessant desire to acquire more and more and more stuff and go into debt to get it. Yeah, we'll talk about success and parenting and leadership, but all of it as it relates to Jesus and his cross. A Jesus-centered, cross-centered message. That's the central message, the gospel. You know, a Christless, crossless brand of preaching was foreign to Paul. We're going to see it in this letter. Everything he addresses in this Corinthian church, all of their problems, he takes them back to Jesus and the cross. 
And so he says to them, remember, when I was there, my preaching did not contain lofty speech or wisdom. My message was the simple gospel and my preaching style wasn't very impressive. Paul, when he was there, did not cater to the culture by amping up his rhetoric or by putting his considerable speaking skills on display. He wasn't trying to use impressive vocabulary. In fact, it seems like he was deliberately going out of his way to be unimpressive. I just preached Jesus, him crucified. By the way, I think what he's really done in this section that we're looking at today, he's really given us three reasons why people reject the gospel. Number one, it sounds unreasonable, foolish, moronic. Number two, its followers are unimpressive. And number three, its teachers are not fashionable and hip and cool and trendy. So many people reject the gospel for those reasons. But he does remind them, hey, remember when I was there, my preaching was accompanied by spiritual power. He's like, do you guys remember? I mean, when I was there and I preached Jesus on the cross, do you remember what you felt? Do you remember what was going on in your heart? Do you remember that when I came with with signs and miracles and a demonstration of the power of God? Remember that? No, I didn't sound all educated and everything and... I I couldn't match wits with some of your philosophers. I brought the gospel, and the power of God was in the gospel. And then he said, my goal in preaching was to cultivate faith in God's power, not man's wisdom. So that's why I preached the way I did. And so when Paul preached to people, he preached the simple gospel message. Foolish, foolish sounding to some, offensive to others contradicting human philosophies, not using impressive vocabulary, minus fine-sounding arguments based on human wisdom, but accompanied by spiritual power and conviction of sin and the challenge to people to put their faith 100% in the power of God and not rely any on their own wisdom to be saved, to get to God. And so I think you could sum up all of Paul's point like this. God's wisdom and power are revealed in the gospel and it is far superior to human wisdom and strength. So how, again, how might the Holy Spirit want to apply this teaching to us? We know he applied it to the church at Corinth. How might he want to apply it to New Life Church Gehenna? And again, I prayed through this and three things stood out to me. First, let's talk for a minute about our main message. One guy said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is our message. That's our message to each other as believers. It's our message to the world. Our message, our main message is not politics or issues. Our main message to the world is not, you better behave better. They can't. Our main message is Jesus Christ, the gospel, the savior of the world, came, took on human form, lived a beautiful, perfect life, and then subjected himself to brutal execution on a cross, shedding his blood in atonement, payment, Propitiation for our sins, averting the wrath of God so that we could 
have a way to be made right with God. And then he was raised from the dead to demonstrate his power. And now anyone who repents of their sins and simply believes the simple gospel can be saved. That's our message. And I would say to you, and something I'm learning, the gospel is not just that message that gets you in and then you move on to the, the good stuff. No. As C.J. Mahaney said, the gospel is not one class among many that you'll take as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes are contained in. Everything you learn and study as a believer in Jesus Christ and in your journey of discipleship falls within the walls of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You never get past the cross. If you do, you've left basic Christianity behind. This is our main message. Only the God-centered gospel can save people. Only by believing the gospel can people ever fulfill their destiny of glorifying God with their lives. So church, let's remind ourselves to keep the main thing the main thing. Second, let's talk for a moment about spreading the gospel. Spreading it. You know, the gospel was not meant to be contained. It was meant to be proclaimed by everyone, all the time, to everybody, in every place, in every time, in any, every generation, in every culture. The gospel was meant to be spread, taught, preached, proclaimed, shared to everyone all the time. That's why we want to plant more churches, to spread the gospel. That's why we want to go on more short-term missions trips, to spread the gospel. That's why you should pray for opportunities with your coworkers or friends to share the message. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And of course, when we share it, some people will reject it. Some people will see it as nonsense, foolish. Others will go, thank you. A lady here last weekend, thank you gospel. It's what I've been looking for my whole life. We're not responsible for their response. We're just responsible to share it, to sow the seed. And God, it says, will give the increase. Let's be a church known for sharing and spreading the gospel. Amen? That's our main message. And then let's talk for a few moments about boasting about God. I'm, a, I'm intrigued by this little phrase, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. Bragging on God. Do we do that? Some of you do. You, I, I'm so proud of you. You do. You live your life looking for opportunities to speak a word about God, to boast in God, to let people know who God is, what he's done for you, what he's done. Some people boast about God. That's what we ought to be doing. Some Christians do boast. Others don't boast at all. They're ashamed of Jesus. Others boast about the wrong things. Paul said, do not be ashamed of Jesus. Sometimes Christians do things to avoid being thought of as foolish or weird. Sometimes Christians change what they believe to accommodate people so they won't look foolish. Hey, do you believe that? Are you one of those that believes that? Oh, no, no. Are you one of the, no. Uh, not really. Sometimes, 
Christians just don't answer any of the hard questions. So people won't think that they're stupid or foolish. Sometimes even well-known pastors on Larry King when asked, so do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God? And he says, well, you know, I mean, yeah, Christians believe that. And But I've been to India and there's lots of good people there who don't know Jesus and they do lots of good things. And so I don't want to, you know, it's like you're a mailman. Don't tamper with the mail. Don't open the mail. Don't change the mail. Just deliver the mail. (laughs) Just deliver the mail. Say, yes, Larry. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds foolish and ridiculous, but Jesus said it. I'm not going to apologize for what he said. He said, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. You can't get to God except through me. Call me narrow-minded. Call me a bigot. Call me all that stuff. Jesus. He said it. So well, if, I, if I'm that outspoken, I'm going to look foolish. Well, Paul later talks about being a fool for Christ's sake. Go for it. Be nuts for Jesus. Well, people will think like I'm an idiot. Okay. Okay. So they think you're an idiot. People thought Jesus was an idiot. Moronic. People thought Paul was out of his head at times. We weren't called to be popular. We were called to be devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, some people boast about themselves. It's like, you know, hey, we're the good guys, you're the bad guys, and we're going to beat up on you in the end. We win. We win. (laughs) That's more like arrogance. I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Excuse you. I don't even know what to say after that. (laughs) All right. Um, Come back, come back. A couple things to respond to. One is, how many of you have already felt, God's already been talking to you, maybe even before today, for a while, about being more bold to speak up for Jesus. I mean, to just have courage, and when an opportunity comes, instead of letting it pass by, you seize it, and you go, this, you're just yielded to the Spirit of God, and, and, he, and you want to be more courageous and bold in boasting about God in front of your friends, with your coworkers, with people who don't know Christ. Can I see your hands? God's already talked to you a lot about that. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Would you? If that's you, here in a safe place (laughs) with mostly other followers of Christ. Okay. Anybody else? I just sense God talking to me about being more bold and courageous, boasting in him, speaking up for him. Okay. And I want to pray for you in a moment. You know, sometimes in a church building with lots of comrades, it's one thing. And then Thursday afternoon at the lunch table, it's something else, isn't it? So remain standing for a few minutes. There's some others of you, I think, in the room who are not yet believers in the gospel, but you sense God's been calling you. 
And yeah, maybe you used to think Jesus and all that cross stuff was just ridiculous, but now God's beginning to open your eyes and you're beginning to see the beauty of the gospel and the cross. Maybe you don't understand it all yet and you're not quite sure how you respond, but I got to believe there's folks in this room that way. And what I'd like you to do, if that's you, I want you to look around at someone who's standing because they want to be more bold in sharing their faith. So before you leave today, if you, you could just go to one of these people, just, you know, pick someone out. Say, I'm going to go to that person before it's all over, and I'm going to ask them to just kind of, could you give me some guidance in how to really embrace this gospel thing and, and come to know Jesus? Now, those of you who are standing, would you do that? Would you be willing to do that? Maybe you can just share your story, you know? Here's how God worked in my life. But please, Paul's talking to us about the gospel. I would challenge you, do not leave the room without coming alongside one of these folks who's standing and just asking them, could you give me some guidance on how to embrace the gospel of Jesus? And I know they'd love to do that. So Lord, standing here inside this church building, standing up saying, I want to be more outspoken for Jesus Christ is a great step to take. And I Pray for everybody who's standing right now. I pray that you would give them an opportunity, maybe even this week, Lord. And Lord, we know there have been times where we blew it. We missed an opportunity. It was there. A word for Jesus needed to have been spoken, and we didn't speak it. And we feel guilty, and some feel defeated. And I pray you just cover your grace over us. (laughs) Just pour your grace out on us and Help us to rest confidently in your forgiveness and cleansing. And I pray that you would grant us an opportunity, even this week, to speak a word for Jesus, to just open our mouths and that what's inside would come rushing out. And Lord, however people respond to that, we're not responsible for. Give us the courage to sow the seed, to boast in God, to share the message of Jesus. Lord, even if it's in a faltering, halting way, which it might be, make up for our lack and spread your love and your wonderful gospel to people who need to hear it. And Lord, for those in the room who've never yet believed the gospel, may they, even today, as you're calling them, may they respond by taking a step towards someone else and just asking, could you help me understand this a little bit better, what what that guy was talking about up there? happened last weekend here. So Lord, do it again, that their life might begin to glorify your holy name. I ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.